guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Janine. And I'm Shivani, and we are very excited to have Michael S. Roth joining us here today. President Roth is president of Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, where he has served since 2007. Known as a historian, curator, and author, Roth was previously the Hartley Burr Alexander Professor of Humanities at Scripps College, Associate Director of the Getty Research Institute, and President of the California College of the Arts. His latest book, Beyond the University, Why Liberal Arts Matters, explores the historical background of liberal arts education in the United States. Welcome to the show. Thanks, great to be here. Yeah, awesome to have you. So during your undergrad years at Wesleyan, you majored in history of psychological theory and went on to publish several works within the psychology field. In your opinion, what is the psychology behind a liberal arts education? Well, that's a great question. I think that the uh, psychological assumptions uh, embedded in liberal education are uh, connected to the idea that all people will be stimulated by an introduction to uh, ongoing inquiry and that as human beings we thrive when we are asking questions that lead to more questions uh, the answers to which may be satisfying but will always be unsatisfying enough that we'll continue to ask questions so uh, I was interested in psychoanalysis and the kind of philosophical uh, framework for um, interactive psychotherapy. And, and that too is based on a kind of openness and ongoingness. You know, and people make fun of it because you say, you're never done. It's a great way of, you know, for the psychiatrist to earn money. Uh, but in education, it is you're never done, right? You're, you're, what you're learning at a place like CMC or other liberal uh, arts colleges is uh, how to learn and how to ask questions uh, that will lead you to still more questions. And that's a different kind of psychology than one of training where you are encouraged to create habits that you do automatically. And the whole point of training, whether it's in uh, you know, a sport or in, uh, in, in, in let's say, uh, coding, is to do things without thinking about them, mm-hmm. right? Like when you drive the car, you don't want to be driving the car with the mind of a liberal arts professor. Like, is it really right for me to shift into third, or <laughs> should I stop the stop sign? Or as that show, you didn't want that, right? Mm-hmm. You want you want to just do things without thinking right. because they're ingrained in your way of being in the world. The liberal arts education is predicated on the notion that for many of the things we do, we actually want to be able to stop and think and stop again and think again. Now, uh, the kind of liberal education that I defend in Beyond the University is pragmatic liberal education. So you also have to do things, not just stop doing things. Uh, but But what's common with the traditional notion of liberal education is that human beings are seen as uh, capable of wonder, as Aristotle said, philosophy begins in wonder, and and capable of um, uh, inquiry that uh, is satisfying for its own sake. So we also want to talk to you about implementing a liberal arts education, and you've spoken about Thomas Jefferson's idea of the raking of the rubble. Um, raking of the rubbish. Yes. The rubbish, sorry. So I'm a student who is attending this university on financial aid, Mm -hmm. and so I wanted you to speak a little bit about um, the connection between need-based scholarship and liberal arts philosophy and what the raking of the rubbish means. Yeah, well, for Jefferson, raking of the rubbish meant uh, you find people who have no resources uh, who you wouldn't 
nor anything. This is a play on the notion of white trash in the South, of people who would be looked down upon by aristocrats uh, who were forming the country and, and forming institutions. But you look there for real talent, because otherwise rich people will just um, continue to pad their wealth and not challenge their progeny, and so they'll get dumber and dumber. But you need this competition, and so you look for really smart, talented people who may not have resources and give them access to an education. That was Jefferson's idea. Today, at, at schools like CMC or like Wesleyan, uh, it's so important that this kind of education not be a finishing school for wealthy people to indulge in inquiry in their spare time. There is a side of liberal education that seems like the life of leisure. In fact, uh, uh, some people who write on the subject say that uh, from the Greeks on, uh, liberal arts education is about what about being free, which means being free from work. You know, most people in the world uh, are not ever going to be free from work. Um, <laughs> and in fact, the American version of this kind of education is not about leisure. It's about doing stuff with your education. And so providing access to people with talent, ambition, and energy, but without money, is so important for the schools themselves because they will be energized by that ambition. Um, and it's important for other students who do have resources so that they um, get to both collaborate and compete with talented people from uh, other walks of life. Um, and it is a vehicle then also for social mobility. One of the things I find most distressing about the current situation of higher education in the United States is that um, in many ways it, it cements uh, social privilege rather than create social mobility. And so what you do find is uh, many people getting into the schools of their parents or their grandparents even, um, and there's, a, there's a, this legacy of privilege that gets baked into the institution. Uh, that's very dangerous for democracy. It's very dangerous for these educational institutions. Instead, what we want to have is a rich mix uh, of uh, students from different walks of life uh, whose competition and collaboration will lead to more creativity. And so I think robust financial aid programs are absolutely essential. Uh, and also offering students opportunities to, to uh, fulfill their academic requirements for an undergraduate degree in, in more uh, cost-effective ways. By that I mean, I, I think it's not that hard to actually finish a BA in mm -hmm. three years uh, if the school allows that to happen. And then you can save 25%. At Westin, we, we it's 20% because it does cost something to get those extra credits. You can save 20% off the total sticker price, which is a big deal whether you're on eight or not, mm -hmm. uh, and I, without changing your academic work at all, uh, without changing your academic requirements. It's not for everybody, but I do think it is uh, an alternative to some of the high cost uh, uh, issues in, in higher education. Right. I mean, and, and to that end, what is sort of the happy balance between merit-based scholarships and need-based scholarships, in your opinion? Because um, at schools like CMC, we offer the Seaver Scholarship, which you know covers uh, the entirety of the tuition, and then we offer you know the McKenna Scholarship, which is again another um, scholarship or merit-based scholarship. So to address sort of where should the money go and how uh, should that's we a good question. how should we balance it? Do you have well, any you know, I, I I I don't know that it's one size fits all. I think that part of the part of the strength of the American higher education. Uh, organism, it's not really a system, is that there are lots of different ways to create a great school. And, and schools are great in different ways. Uh, uh, there's not only one, it's not a one size fits all. That said, <laughs> I have a bias against merit scholarships, okay. which I think are 
uh, misused by many schools uh, in order to just take students who would wind up in another grade school and you'd get them at your school. I don't think that's, there's no social good involved. Now I say that we have a merit scholarship, a small program at Wesleyan that's been in existence for over 20 years, the Freeman Scholars Program, which is for 11 different Asian uh, uh, countries. Started by a family before I came uh, to uh, back to Wesleyan as president, and we got fantastically gifted students from 11 uh, different East Asian countries, and they contributed mightily to the school. Some of them were wealthy people who didn't need the scholarship, but they probably wouldn't have come to America, or they certainly wouldn't have come to a small liberal arts college without the, the prestige and competition and resources that the scholarship provides. However, there are many schools I know in the United States, and I doubt the CMC is one of these, uh, that use merit scholarships really as a technique to uh, add uh, families to the, to the community who might then help the school in other ways. Okay. So I know wealthy students in New York uh, who's, who's, uh, uh, who get merit scholarships to different colleges in the United States and part of the deal is that, is that their parents will become part of the philanthropic world of that school. Mm -hmm. It's a way of attracting the student because is that student who gets the merit scholarship um, at College X or University X, I'm not saying this happens at, at CMC, mm -hmm. is that student really much better than all these other students who didn't get it? Maybe, maybe it's true. It, in our case of our Asian, uh, East Asian Studies program, it, we weren't gonna get those students at all. Right. Um, and so it, that that I, there was a kind of rationale for it. I am thinking about though, just to, just to be candid with you, and it's we haven't I haven't talked about this in public yet about a prize at Wesleyan that mm -hmm. would be a, a scholarship, but for one person, not a big program. I, I think what happens with merit programs is you often are robbing the people who need the money most to give to people who don't need it at all, and I don't think schools should be in that business. Uh, if you're attracting people from a very different part of the world or a different set of interests than you could otherwise attract, I could see merit being used. But there are some schools in the United States that famously use merit and are incredibly ungenerous. So there's a school, I'm thinking of in the Midwest, for example, that has one of the lowest percentage of Pell Grant uh, students uh, in the student body in the country, and it's a very wealthy school. And they have tons of merit scholarships. Mm -hmm. I think it's just immoral. Right. Uh, and I don't, that's to me not just the diversity of different schools. That's just a school saying, I want to help the rich get richer. Because if the rich get richer and they went to my school, then they'll give me money. Yeah. Uh, where I think that the, what's very important is for the school not to take people who came to the work there, you know, but to offer robust financial aid to as many students they, as they can who will thrive at that school. Right. No, uh, that's that's a fair point entirely. Um, so going back to you know your statement that despite being a liberal arts education, <clears throat> excuse me, it should have elements of pragmatism within it. Um, CMC, uh, by its nature, we've we've sort of debated between whether uh -huh. we are pragmatic school or pre-professional school. Um, does do you think there is a differentiation between Absolutely. that first and foremost? Um, and do you think in education, I've, and you've you've sort of answered this, um, to what end does in education need to be pragmatic when you're considering a liberal arts education? So uh, in my, in beyond the university, um, I present the case that liberal education in the United States is different from liberal arts education mm -hmm. in its broader European uh, context. 
It's a subset of that. Liberal education in the United States has always been pragmatic, partly because uh, it's been tied to the sciences. And uh, so when I start off with Jefferson and Franklin, uh, they believed deeply that learning for its own sake was a core uh, attribute of the the best in uh, in humans. <laughs> uh, but they also thought that learning for its own sake had pragmatic benefits. So there's a nuance there, right? It's not that learning for its own sake is really wonderful and you should sit in a garden and learn for its own sake. No, learning for its own sake is really uh, in, in, beautiful and wonderful and you should do that experiment to find out how to create a lightning rod or how to do better crop rotation or how to create better laws. That the proof would be in the pudding. It's a very old American notion. Um, and you know that's pre the philosophy of pragmatism that develops at the late 1800s. Uh, but but it's it, it's it's clearly I think in that um, a genealogy, and, and for me that's really important because you are learning for its own sake. You can study economics, you can study business, uh, you can study design and organization and engineering, in a way that's holistic, that looks at the interconnection of that field with other things, that gives you a sense of the conceptual apparatus that's being used in the field. Um, you're not just a technician; you're a thinker mm. who's getting skills that you can use in the world. That's not just pre-professional. That's liberal in the sense that I use a, a, a pragmatic liberal education. But you could do it another way. You could have a business track that really aims just to get you an interview and then a job. Mm -hmm. And you're not looking at the intellectual foundations of what you're doing. You're not looking at the interconnection of what you're doing with other things. If CMC was going down that road, I think it would be a shame. I think it would be a waste of resources and an abdication of responsibility. I mean, I've had my differences with the, the, the way the school has, was run when I was a student, a student when I was a young, young <laughs> professor here. But what I always admired about the students I had from CMC, and I had many students from CMC, mm -hmm. was a kind of intellectual toughness and uh, uh, a kind of edge to their thinking that may have landed them in a great job in the business world or in government or in academia. But it wasn't, um, it was open to, to, to inquiry. That's really what I mean about liberal education is open to inquiry, mm -hmm. not narrowing your inquiry so you can please the, uh, the guy you think is going to interview you. Right. I, I, if I may, just to, just to add something to that, I, I think what's happened for a lot of college students today who've gone through the American high school systems uh, and no child left behind is that education gets, uh, gets tied to giving the right answer on a test. That's what people have been taught, you know, uh, for the last 15 years if, they, if they're coming to uh, college now. Now, what that means, if you're good at it, and if you're at CMC, you're good at taking tests, <laughs> right? You've been good at it, is that you anticipate what the person wants to hear. Right. That's a skill. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very narrow skill. And so if all we reward is, like, you know, in pre-professional work is that you are anticipating what somebody wants to hear, you are going to be a great conformist, but you're not going to be a great con creative contributor to whatever organization you uh, 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 join. And one of the things that I, I did find so powerful at CMC, and again, politically, I was on the left, people I knew here were on the right, but what was so powerful about the people I knew from CMC is that they were contrarians. Mm -hmm. You know, they, were, they weren't contrarian in the way the hippies were, right? <laughs> but they were contrarians in their own way. Right. And the ability to be a contrarian and yet to get things done, mm -hmm. that I thought was the sweet spot for a CMC and for other uh, liberal arts colleges. 
What I do worry about, and you had uh, the author of Excellent Sheep here as a fellow uh, not that long ago, right? Uh, what I do worry about, as he does, uh, uh, William DeWissowitz, is that, um, that, the conf that the path to conformity is identified with the path to economic success. And insofar as that's true, it's extremely short-sighted. Mm -hmm. um, and it's more true if you start off with lots of money than if you have to actually create something. Right. I mean, and to that end, you you mentioned the responsibility. Um, where is that share of responsibility in terms of on the institution itself versus the students? Because you know, going back to your own history, you designed your own major at Wesleyan. Um, how essential do you think that was in basically allotting you to pursue the path that you wanted to? Um, and is it something that you would recommend students just to, to you know be yeah. more curious, um, yeah. to be more basically ambitious and fitting or making the institution um, basically give them the resources they want to, to pursue where they want to go? Well, it's a, it's a, that's a very, it's a great question. So in my case, uh, I was trying to major in procrastination as an undergraduate. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was working in a psychiatric ward in a hospital in town. I thought, you know, psychiatry was an oppressive system meant to keep, uh, you know, uh, interesting people down. <laughs> I, I was really wrong about that. I learned. Um, uh, that's certainly not all it is. Uh, I was began to study philosophy, which I had uh, knew much about, uh, and I was very excited by that. And I was good at history. I did well in my history tests. And so that I thought, okay, maybe I should mix that in. And so um, at Wesleyan at the time, I discovered, much to my surprise, that I didn't have to choose. I could make up a major. I had a, a substitute dean who, who explained to me, why decide, man? You can, you know, you, you can do it all. And I was graduating in three years to save my parents money. Mm -hmm. And um, I was amazed that I could do this. And I did it. And uh, then he said to me, you ought to go to California, man. <laughs> and I called my, my parents and, and said, uh, well, the dean said I have to go to California. And I actually bought a tent and I had a used car. And I drove out to California with my then girlfriend. And it was great. It was a great adventure. Um, uh, I think the institution gave me the space to do what I wanted to do. Now, it also gave me the space to hang myself <laughs> if I want. You know, in other words, I could have just you know did a terrible job. I I was able to combine these things and write a senior thesis that then became a book and then became an exhibition. And and at the time, I didn't know that would happen. I actually thought I was getting away with something. But in fact, it was the perfect vehicle for me to try something. When I was in graduate school, I wasn't sure if I should be in history or philosophy. I didn't really like Princeton very much. I went to my advisor and said, I don't know what I'm doing here. I should, I should just get a job. I'm going to leave. And he called Shorsky, who was a dear, became a dear friend. He said to me, why don't you just stop whining and just write your papers and write? Who cares what field you're in? Who cares what the requirements are? Nobody cares. Just do what you're going to do, and let's see. Let's, let's look at it. And if it's not good, yeah, go ahead. We don't care if you leave. But if it's good, you may want to stay. And that was a kind of smack in the head, you know, I, which I needed. Uh, and it was fantastic for me because I, he, he said, you know, this is the world is your oyster. Go to any classes you want to, and do what you want to do, and see if you're any good. So I, for me, that was perfect. Some students need more guidance. And Wesley and I often get people coming to see me and say, can I make up my own major? Because you did. And I say, well, <laughs> I'll support you. The faculty often say, you know, you're better off being an English major or an economics major because it's close to that. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while they say, yeah, this, you do need to combine things in your own way. But the proof will be in what you do. 
And that's why I think it's different from this leisure liberal arts education tradition where the proof is in how you contemplate the world. At the American tradition, the proof is what you do. Mm -hmm. Did you create something? Did you write a great poem? Did you do a scientific experiment that is publishable? Did you open an organization that uh, is actually doing uh, the work of its mission? So these are the things that I think matter uh, uh, most freedom that leads to um, uh, work in the world. So I think it's the institution's responsibility to give the students who will thrive in that atmosphere the space to do it, and also the ones who will fail to give them the indications that they failed, mm -hmm. you know, that it's not working and that you ought to try something else. And that can be pretty brutal. Being the president of an art school is good experience. I'm not an artist myself. Just completely inept in the, as an artist, but going to art crits, you know, you have your work critiqued in front of all your classmates. I don't, you know, that doesn't happen so much in my fields. Hand in your paper, you get it back. If it's terrible, you, you know. <laughs> but in an art crit, you're you're there with all your fellow students, and the teachers go around and they say, "What? What is this?" You know, and the whole class is watching you crumble. You know, <laughs> oh, wow. yeah, it's very intense. Yeah, and so I think that intensity of of, of getting work done and taking the taking the heat or the praise, as it may be. That's a great feature of an institution. Students push, the university says yes to some things, guides in, no, away from other things. Um, and I, I think sometimes getting out of the way so students could try things is important, as long as they're not putting themselves physically at risk. Uh, so I think it's a collaborative venture, at least that's a, when it works well is when the, the institution uh, gives students space, but also gives them guidance to use the space well. So going back a little bit, you yeah. had mentioned uh, No Child Left Behind. Yes. And I wanted to talk to you about what you think the role of American public school system is in creating intellectual curiosity. And is it possible for elementary schools, middle schools, high schools to be founded on liberal arts philosophy? And what does that look like to you? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And I, you know, uh, someone asked me about this last night after my talk at the Athenaeum. And, you know, my wife said to me afterwards, she's a professor, wasn't she? She said, yeah, your answer wasn't very good. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, we're trying to give yeah, you a so, platform to repeat Well, that. you know, I, I, I'm not an expert on, uh, I'm not an expert at all on K through 12. I spent, I've spent my life in colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've never, I've, I worked at the Getty Center for a while, but, you know, uh, I've really been in the, the higher education. So there are a lot of people who've thought deeply about this and, and, uh, but the, the, the quick answer is that um, the approach to pragmatic liberal education it fits completely with the progressive education movement in the United States. I mean, Dewey uh, spent most of his time writing about uh, children uh, in regard to education. So what, what does that mean? It means giving, giving kids, uh, and now they, some people want to call them scholars, they're children, <laughs> um, uh, children the opportunity to collaborate with one another, to learn by doing, that's very important in the Dewey, Dewey's philosophy. Um, certainly, there's still memorization and there's still drilling because that is, that is a way of exercising the mind, right? I mean, just like there's still strength exercises in the gym. What you want is intellectual cross-training so that the kid is, is learning a combination of skills that um, reinforce curiosity reinforcing curiosity. And I think that can be done in any number of ways. I mean, great teachers in elementary school and high school, what they do is they give the students enough encouragement to lead them to ask more questions. 
And uh, it takes gifted teachers. I mean, uh, it's very easy to tell somebody the answer you gave. I ask you, what is five and three? And you say nine. It's very easy to say, no, idiot, that's eight. <laughs> and, but what's really hard is to think, why did, you, why did that person say nine? Is it because the person is nervous and just say whatever came into his head? Mm. Or is it because it was a mistake that I can figure out and then tell you, oh, you know why you said nine? It's because of this. But instead, it's the other way. And um, that, which is described in a book called How to Build a Better Teacher, which I reviewed a year or two ago, I think that's a great gift. And that is liberal education at the uh, the K through 12 level, encouraging curiosity and giving the students enough tools and material to think with. So now we kind of like to bring the discussion back to the Claremont Colleges. Sure. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Claremont Consortium consists of five liberal arts colleges, Harvey Mudd, Pitzer, Claremont McKenna, Pomona, and Scripps. So in your opinion, which of these five schools subscribes the most to the liberal arts philosophy? Oh, I'm not going to take that. Be as candid as you can. You know, you have some bias towards Scripps. But. Well, I love Scripps. <laughs> you know, it was a great place to start teaching, but I don't think there's one way to do this. You know, I... There, um, I think that uh, you'll think I'm pandering to you guys, but <laughs> I think the great thing about Claremont is that you don't have to choose, right? Right. Um, I mean, so uh, when we visited with uh, our daughter, Sophie, um, she really likes Scripps a lot. Um, and um, she wound up choosing Pomona because she, you know, because she was less attracted to a women's college and, and more attracted to the breadth of the Pomona curriculum. But I think her, one of her favorite classes uh, for, in her first semester was at Scripps. Okay. It was a 5C class um, and uh, taught by a Pomona professor, Sid Lamel, who I knew when I was a professor here. Oh, wow. Um, and so I think what's great about uh, being a student here, and I can tell you as a teacher, it was fantastic, is to have students from all five schools, because they're different personalities, as you know, right? And I don't want to try to stereotype them. But there is a feel that's different. You walk right. on the CMC class, I just, I walked up through scripts across the street just like I used to do into CMC. It's a different feel. When I was teaching, I had incredible CMC students. I mean, some of my most memorable students were from CMC. Um, you know, I had kids in the ROTC, I had, I had um, um, athletes, I had uh, very strong women students from CMC, and I had students at scripts that I just loved. And what I, as I tell you this, one of my favorite students who went on to get a PhD in history was a Pomona student, Steve Larson, who's now teaching in China. Um, and his one of his good friends, I still stay in touch with another Pomona student. And so what I think is great about this consortium is that you get different flavors of how curiosity can activate inquiry. At CMC, it seemed more social science-y, perhaps more oriented to to government and business than, mm -hmm. say, Pitzer, right. uh, for right. example. That is a fair right? distinction. And, and, um, uh, and at, at, at Scripps, you had a def a, certainly a different ethos in the classroom. I'm, I'm fond of uh, remembering that the Scripps students I had, I've never seen this anywhere else in the same way, had intellectual friendships that were just astonishing. I, when I started the Humanities Institute at Scripps, we started this Humanities Fellows Program, and the women who were part of that bonded with one another over what we were learning in ways I've never seen anywhere else because mm -hmm. of the maybe the, the collaborative nature of the enterprise. Um, so I think that um, the, 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 the genius of this Oxford and the Orange Groves idea 
as it was called way back when, uh, was that you could have these different personalities interact with one another. You go back to your home campus and you have, let's say, more of CMC-ness when you're here, but you don't have to have only that. Right. And so you have this, that, 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 you don't get that at university. You have a, a variety of approaches to liberal education um, and you get to see, as I'm seeing in this visit, there are many ways to do it really well. Mm. And to wrap things up, uh, we like to kind of ask a constant question to all of our interviewees. Um, what is your personal definition of success? I think that's so relevant uh, to students you know, in college and, uh, and beyond. And what advice would you give to young people in order to achieve um, their own definition of success? It's a, it's a very good question. I don't know that I have a... It's a bit a of very, a complicated a one, I agree. A very good answer for you. I... I um, you know, I, I am very devoted to Wesleyan because it changed my life. I was a first generation student um, and, you know, didn't know anything about college life and mine, you know, wind up spending my life in colleges and universities. And, and uh, so for me, making a contribution to the cause, to not just to Wesleyan, but to the cause of liberal education is the most satisfying for me. I don't know if I think of it as success, I think, but it is very, very satisfying. Um, I like to help um, the people around me, whether they're students uh, or colleagues and sometimes friends uh, to do the work they feel they're meant to do. You know, I think I, for me, I get to do a lot of things that are incredibly fun, like do this podcast with you and, and give lectures and write books and, and, and teach. But I want to help the people who work with me uh, and the students I work with to find out what gives them satisfaction. I, if you had said to me when I was an undergraduate, you ought to go to grad school and be a professor or a president, I was like, you're nuts. I mean, why would I do that? I, my answer was when I was an undergraduate, why would I learn something just to teach it to someone else? That just seemed like, I mean, my father made fur coats. You know, I, it was very tangible. Right. <laughs> um, and now I think um, I, as a teacher and as a as a as a president, I, I try to figure out how I can help other people realize their own visions of success, um, which I hope are not going to be only selfish, but that's up to them. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that's going to be up to them. And my role is to help them find the kind of work that is meaningful to them, that is purposeful. Sometimes that's going to involve making money. Sometimes it's going to involve serving others. I hope it involves both. But, you know, in the end, my job is not to tell them how to, what should count. My job is to help them think about what counts. Because I have said this to my students every semester. If you don't determine what counts for you, someone else will do it for you. Right. And that's, for me, the definition of unfreedom. Mm -hmm. If you're going to have a chance of having a, a life that's more free and meaningful, you should think about what, what matters to you. And I should help you do that, not tell you what it is. <laughs> Fair. All right. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, President Roth, for being here. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. It was my pleasure. Thank you.